Well, tonight we are continuing on with our series in the parables. I'm really excited about what we get to talk about tonight. Uh, but first, let me just open up with uh, one, of the, one of the few highlights that we kind of see nowadays, once in a blue moon when we're watching like a uh, uh, national news station or something. Because if you haven't realized, when we look at the national news stations, there's not a lot of stories that leave us feeling very optimistic and happy these days, Right. No, we live in a pretty pessimistic society, but occasionally you'll see one of those news stories that just makes you kind of happy and hopeful for humanity. And some of my favorite stories are when you see the response of a family or a community welcoming home a soldier that's been over-deployed in the Middle East or some other part of the world for multiple months, and they get to come home and sometimes even surprise their kids, surprise their families, and you just see the pure excitement and the pure joy of welcoming someone that you love so much home. So when you see these videos broadcast, it just kind of brings a tear to your eye. You're just so happy for these people. And oftentimes what you'll see, you'll see a little Johnny and Susie holding up their signs saying, welcome home, mom or dad. And we're so proud of you, right? You'll see people coming up and flocking and giving them lots of hugs, a few kisses, lots of tears of happiness. And not only that, you just see these soldiers receiving a hero's welcome and being celebrated for returning home. And they rightly deserve that because each and every one has served honorably and heroically by defending their country. Okay, so the joy of coming home. Now contrast that with another picture. Okay, so I, I want us to think about this for a moment. Think about another young person coming home, but let's change the circumstances a little bit. So this young person, maybe they, let's say they attend Wausau West, okay, and it's their senior year, and they just got busted for long-term repeated plagiarism in one of their classes. And when they got busted for that, the principal found out, the whole school found out, and now the principal has called mom and dad early that afternoon and told them this has been going on, they've been plagiarizing papers left and right, and here's the punishment. Three-day out-of-school suspension, academic probation, and a letter in your, in your permanent transcripts, right? And that's the phone call mom and dad had. Now, imagine you're that student and you have to drive home after school. And you know that mom and dad sent you a text and said, we'll be waiting, right? And as you pull into the driveway and you slowly glance up and your eyes meet your parents' eyes and they're standing there, what are you expecting to see? They're probably not holding a sign that says, welcome home, son, we're so proud of you, right? There's probably not going to be a ton of hugs and kisses and happy tears. And they're probably not going to say, you know what, we're going to celebrate tonight. You and all your friends, we're going out to Texas Roadhouse. You deserve a big steak for cheating and getting in so much trouble, right? That's not what you're expecting. What are you expecting? You're expecting discipline. You're expecting the disappointment eyes. You're expecting the lecture that you get about being a responsible young adult. All these things you expect when someone is disobedient and rebellious that they're going to come home and get punished. They're going to get what they deserve. That's the reception that you under. Heroes get celebrated. Losers and cheaters get punished. That's just the justice within us. That's how we expect the world to operate. Now, think about those two contrasting pictures about two different people returning home. And as we expect a certain response, so did the original audience that Jesus was talking to tonight. Because he talks about a son coming home. And the reaction that the father has totally inverts everything we were just talking about. Because this son is a disobedient, disrespectful deadbeat. 
So you'd expect him when he comes home to get the disappointment eyes, the lecture, the punishment, all these things. But the father completely inverts that and responds like any other, like no other father would. And it completely confounds Jesus' audience. Because in our parable tonight, it's the parable that a lot of us know as the parable of the prodigal son. How, how many of you have heard that before? Parable, right? Parable of the prodigal son. Worst named parable of all of them. Okay? That's, it completely misses the point. Because as we're going to see in our parable tonight, the main character is not the younger son. The main character is not the older son. It says there was a man with two sons. And this parable is about a father. He's the main character and the father's love for his two deadbeat, disrespectful sons. So tonight, the main spiritual principle that we're going to see from this parable is this. We are to see the radical, relentless love of our heavenly father for us. The radical, relentless love for our heavenly father for us. And I really think a better title for this parable would be the parable of the prodigal father. Because there's two meanings of the word prodigal. One means to, as we think from this parable, to go out and waste your money and kind of ruin your life. But the other dictionary definition of prodigal literally means to give out over the top or generously, right? So we see the prodigal father, the father who lavishes grace and love on undeserving sons. So we're going to see that in Luke 15 tonight. So open up your Bibles to Luke 15. And to understand the context of our parable in verses 11 through 32, first I want to look at verses 1 and 2 and set the scene a little bit. So here's what's going on. It says this, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they started grumbling. And they said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So here's the context. As Jesus is going around and he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching about the kingdom, he's preaching about repentance and having a real relationship with God, he gets two very different responses from two very different groups. The first group is the tax collector and the Pharisees. Now when we read, or not not the, uh, sorry, not the Pharisees, the tax collector and the sinners. Now when we hear that, we think, okay, tax collector, sinners, no big deal. When the original audience of Jesus would have heard that, they're hearing the scum of society. Tax collectors were the most hated people in Jewish society because they were sellouts. They sold out their people to work for the Roman government and extort their own fellow brothers to make money. They were despised. And the word sinners was really an umbrella term for the people who disobeyed the Mosaic law, for the people who were prostitutes, for the people who were irreligious. So it says, the tax collector and the sinners, the modern day interpretation would be Jesus is going around and we see all the druggies and the prostitutes and just, just the lowest, the people that our society oftentimes would look, look down upon. That's what the audience is hearing. And what are they doing? They're flocking to Jesus. They can't, they're hanging on his every word. Why? Because this is the group of people that have soft, receptive hearts. They're cut to the core as Jesus is preaching about repentance and the hope that they can be forgiven by a God they thought hated them. They're they're, they're thirsty for grace and they're flocking around Jesus. Now compare that response to the response of the second group, the scribes and the Pharisees. What do they do? They hate Jesus. Now when the original audience would have heard the scribes and the Pharisees, they would be thinking these are the all-stars in the spiritual world. 
These are the guys when you go to Barnes and Noble and look at the religion section, they are the number one best sellers. They have mega churches. They people flock. They are they're the pinnacle of what it means to be righteous. And they're thinking these are the good guys. So you'd expect them to be flocking around Jesus, but they don't. They grumble. And they say, look at him. <laughs> yeah, some rabbi and teacher he is. Look at the people that hang around him. <laughs> you can tell that he definitely softens what it means to have a relationship with God. And they scoff and they, and they detest Jesus. They especially hate Jesus because he says that their righteousness can't gain them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. At one point, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they resented that because they thought we don't need a savior. We're saving ourselves. We keep the law. We tithe. We offer. We do all these things. How are you saying God's not pleased with us? So in the midst of all this confrontation, Jesus decides to tell a parable to rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes and to show them how wrong their understanding of God truly is. And that's exactly where our story picks up tonight. Now in our story, uh, this parable uh, of the father and his two sons we see five different movements within this parable, okay? So it's a little bit more, it's one of the most complex parables Jesus ever told. And we see all these different movements, okay? And we're going to work through those in our story tonight. But the first movement that we see when Jesus begins this parable, it deals on the topic of rejection. Rejection. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Notice how Jesus starts the parable. He says this, there was a man, there was a father who had two sons. And the younger son came to him one day to his father and said, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them, between his two sons. The younger son, right off the bat, is rejecting a relationship with his father. The younger son comes to the father and he says, Hey, give me my inheritance. Give me what's coming to me. Give me what I deserve. Now, that might not sound too radical to us, but in the first century world, they lived in something called a shame and honor-based society. How many of you have ever heard something like that? A shame and honor-based society. Essentially, it's this. The biggest thing that you never do is bring shame on yourself or your family. So there's a lot of cultures that still operate like that. If you're good to the Middle East or a lot of Asian countries, they are honor and shame-based cultures where you never bring shame on your loved ones. And going up in this culture to the patriarch of your family and saying, listen, dad, I want you to die. You just won't die quick enough. Give me, give me my inheritance. I've been waiting long enough. I've been, you know, putzing around the farm for a while. You're just not dying. Just Hurry up and give me why I belong so I can get out of here. I'm so sick of living under your roof. That is the most shameful thing that you could ever say. Imagine how excruciating that would be for the father to hear. Hey, dad, I kind of wish you were dead because my relationship with you is not real. I've never loved you. I just serve you because I want the things that I get out of a relationship with you. I'm basically a parasite just leeching off of you. And it's time that I get what's coming to me. The father experiences the most profound, uh, profoundly painful thing possible, rejected love. But notice how the father responds in verse 12. It says this, And the father struck the son across the mouth, disowned him, and publicly humiliated him for shaming the family. No, it doesn't, it doesn't say that, right? 
It doesn't say that. But that's what everybody was expecting Jesus to say. The minute he said this, all the Jews are just thinking, okay, it's time for the dad to slap that son to publicly shame him and to put him back on the farm to make up for the stupid thing he just said. But what does the father say? He breaks all of the norms. It says instead, the father divided up the property between his two sons. The dad takes his estate, he divides it up, he gives a third of all of his property and uh, possessions to his son because the younger son would always receive a smaller inheritance than the older son. And the son takes that money, he quickly uh, turns it into, or takes all that land and property and quickly turns it into cash. And as we'll see, he responds pretty terribly in the next few verses. But this would have confounded the original audience. They'd be thinking, what is the father doing? The father needs to discipline. The father is going soft. The fa- what in the world is the father doing? But the father knew that he had to turn the, son off, uh, turn the son out to let him do whatever he wanted in the hopes that one day he would come back and see how good the father really was. You know, in this parable, we see a very direct correlation to how God actually treats us as well. I think of the book of Romans, especially chapter one. God desires a relationship with every single one of us. God desires a relationship with every person on this planet. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God doesn't wish for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is the father who's a good father. And he wants a relationship with all the people in this world. But guess what we've all done? We've all done exactly what the younger son did. We've said, hey, dad, I don't like your rules. I don't like living under your, your roof. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Just give me your stuff and get out of my life. That's what we've all done. Romans 1 tells us that we've all rejected God and replaced him with idols. And because of that, Romans 1 tells us what does God do? He doesn't force his love on us. He doesn't force a relationship with us. He says, okay, I'll give you over to the desires of your heart. Multiple times in Romans chapter 1, it says God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to the desires of the flesh, to do the debased, wicked things that they wanted to do. God says, okay, you can do that if that's what you want to do. So God experiences the pain of rejected love, not just from the younger son in this parable, but really from all of us because we've all chosen to reject God and chase after our own sinful ways. So our parable starts off with rejection, but it quickly moves into rebellion. After the son rejects the father, he begins to live a life of pure rebellion. And we see that in verses 13 through 16. It says this, following along in our passage, not many days later. So real soon after the father says, okay, I'll do it. The younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. The younger son rebels. Rebellion is the second movement that we see here. Notice what we see in this passage. After the son gets what he wants, he goes out and immediately liquidates the assets that his father has given him. Because the father didn't give him a lot of money. What the father would have given him was the most prized commodity back in the first century world, land and property. This was probably an estate that had been built up by his family for centuries. And what does the younger son do? Immediate gratification. 
trades in centuries of hard work for a little bit of cash. It's burning a hole in his pocket. And in modern day terms, the younger son fled on the first one-way ticket to Vegas and flew out there as quickly as possible, right? And what does he do once he's out there? He squanders his money. He blows it all on, it says, reckless living. And that word reckless living is talking about he's going out and just spending money on parties, on alcohol, on, as we see later in the parable, prostitutes. And he's just throwing money around to indulge every sinful inclination and desire he has. He's lived under the father's guidelines and rules for so long. He's cutting free and says, I'm just going to do whatever my heart desires. And you would think that the next few verses, if we go by the wisdom of the world, would say, and the younger son lived happily ever after, right? Because what's the wisdom of the world? We need to just cut loose and do whatever we want, and then we'll find true uh, happiness and belonging. But what does the younger son find instead? He finds disappointment and pain. Immediate gratification is never a wise investment, Indulging sin never satisfies. Chasing pleasure never brings lasting joy. And the son blows all his money, his friends ditch him, the party's over, and now he's basically starving to death, fighting pigs for food. And that's where he finds himself, absolutely at rock bottom. I want to camp out there for just a moment with a word of application for us that's really embedded in this section Because we need to realize that living a rebellious life is not the road to ultimate fulfillment and joy. Living life in the far country is not all that it's cracked up to be. That's so important because we don't hear that message very often. Increasingly, what do we hear literally all the time? Whether it's where you go to college, whether you work, whether the worldview of the media that we listen to, everything we hear says, you need to be your own person to be happy. No one should be able to tell you what to do. It's total autonomy that brings joy. And that is such a lie. And that's what the younger son thought. He thought total autonomy would bring him joy, but it brought nothing but pain and brokenness. If we follow whatever the desires of our hearts are, they'll only bring pain, never the happiness they promise. Our world tells us that happiness comes from being able to express ourselves sexually however we want, Happiness comes from having full autonomy over our bodies to do whatever we want. Happiness comes from being able to drink or smoke whatever we want. Happiness comes from having a life that's just basically a never-ending party. Happiness comes from not having any responsibility, just being able to go and kind of travel with the breeze and go wherever you want and not have the responsibility of a job or kids or all these things. Just kind of live for you. Happiness comes from being free to do whatever it is that we want. The cultural narrative says that the prodigal life is the best life. But look at where the prodigal life leads the younger son. Would anyone in their right mind say the younger son is happy? No, he's absolutely miserable because God didn't design us to experience joy and happiness through reckless and selfish living. God designed us to experience the most joy and satisfaction through a right relationship with him through being loved by him and loving him in return. So please don't think that the prodigal life is the cure for the emptiness and the pain that you're experiencing or the void that you're experiencing in this life. Don't envy the prodigals of the world because ultimately it just ends in emptiness and brokenness. As we see here, his rebellion ends in tragedy. Everything's gone. It says here that he goes out and gets a job with one of the 
owners or the owners of a farm in that land. And literally the Greek says he attached himself. So he's, he's pestering and annoying this man so badly that the guy just kind of makes up a job for him. He says, fine, go feed the pigs. So he's throwing pods to the pigs and the pigs are eating them so quickly. He can't even get to one and eat one himself. And he's that hungry. This is the lowest thing you can do as a Jewish guy. Because what are the things that are detested by the Jews more than anything else? Pigs. They're unclean. They're dirty. And now you're literally wallowing with the pigs in the mud, in the dung, and you, you're eating the things that pigs are eating, and you're literally at rock bottom. And at rock bottom, finally, the younger son finds clarity. He wakes up and realizes his sin. He comes to his senses. He repents over his rebellion, and he begins to long for reconciliation with his father. And that's the third thing, the third movement in our parable tonight, repentance. He finally repents of his sin. Look at verses 17 through 19. It says this, but when the younger son, when he came to himself, he finally realized what's been going on. He said, how many of my father's hired servants? So basically like the lowest of my father's servants, got the field workers. How many of them have more than enough bread to eat? So he's saying even there, my father's a pretty gracious guy. Even his most meager servants are filled with food. And here I am starving. He says, but I perish here with hunger. I'm going to starve to death. Here's what I'll do. I'll arise and go to my father. And then I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please treat me as one of your hired servants. So he comes up with a plan. And the, repent and the plan is all about this R word called repentance. So finally at rock bottom, when God's literally let everything in his life crumble down, all the things that he had built his satisfaction and happiness and identity around, God pulls them all down to show him just how desperately he needs his father. And as he's looking in the mirror and he sees a man who's shriveled from starvation, he sees a man who's covered literally in the waste of pigs, he sees a man who's just broken and exhausted from living in the far country. He longs to be reconciled with the father. But to be reconciled with the father, he knows he has to swallow his pride and he's going to have to go back and repent of exactly what he's done. And you know, how many, how many, for, how many of us is that story true where a lot of the times it takes us hitting rock bottom before we see how desperately we need God in our lives? I'm ashamed to say I can look back at multiple times in my life where God's let me hit rock bottom because I was too hard-hearted to repent of my sin any other way. I can think of one particular time where there was just some, uh, just some long-standing pride in my life, and God really had to take everything that I'd built my identity in and let it crumble before my eyes to humble me and get me to realize I wasn't as cool as I thought I was, and I desperately needed God in my life, right? So many times it takes us to getting to rock bottom to see our true need and our true identity and our true love for the Father. That's what happens with the Son here. He gets to a point where he understands that he needs to repent of his sin. We see three things about repentance in this passage. True biblical repentance. The first thing is this. He understands that he's committed both a vertical and a horizontal sin. When he's rehearsing a speech that he's going to give to the father, what's the first thing he says? I've sinned against who? Heaven and against you. So I, I recognize that I've disobeyed not just your commands, but God's commands. My sin is before both of you, and I need to ask for forgiveness, not only from you, but also from the Father. So first thing he recognizes, 
I need the forgiveness of my heavenly father and my earthly father. The second thing that he does, notice that he accepts the consequences for his actions. What does he say to the father? Does he say, father, take me back in and let's pretend like this never happened? No. What does he say? Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. He says, I know that I've forfeited my identity of being one of your sons. I, 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 can't, I can't call that identity. I can't claim ownership to that identity because I haven't lived that identity out. That's not who I've been. He says, but just treat me as one of your hired servants because being a hired servant under your care is better than being the master of my own life living in the far country. And then the third thing, he commits to leaving his old lifestyle behind and obeying the father. By coming and saying, let me be one of your hired hands. Let me live with you once again. What's he saying? I'm leaving the lifestyle of the far country behind them. I'm committing to be the person that you desire me to be once again. And that's what biblical repentance is all about. It recognizes the guilt and the shame of our actions before God. Repentance refuses to make excuses and blame other people and say, it's not my fault. No, repentance says, it's my fault. I chose this, God. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Repentance accepts the consequences for our sin but it's also a commitment to pursue a new lifestyle of obedience and holiness. I just love the change of heart that we see in the son here. He goes from the beginning thinking the father is this hard-nosed legalist who's a killjoy and just kind of the, the, the enemy, right? I just want to be free from the father. To now he looks back and realizes, no, the father loved me. The father's good. The father took care of me. I need the father. I was stupid to think that I could do this on my own. He has an epiphany and realizes the real character of the father and he had misinterpreted who his father was all along. And that brings us to the fourth movement of the passage, which is reconciliation. Look at verses 20 through 24 when he finally goes home. I love this part of the passage. It says this, And when the younger son arose, he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, here he's doing his rehearsed speech. And he said, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can finish his speech and say, let me be one of your hired hands, the father cuts him off and says to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put him on it. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate tonight. For this, my son, he was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to celebrate. It's the fourth R that we see. Reconciliation. This is not the reaction that any of Jesus' audience was expecting. When the son came home with his tail tucked between his legs... All of the Pharisees and the scribes out there, they're excited. They're really excited because they love punishment. And they're thinking, now he's going to get it. <laughs> the father's going to let him have it. And the father's going to punish him. The father's not going to go out and meet him. He's going to make him come crawling on his knees and kissing the father's feet and asking for forgiveness. And then, you know, the father's probably going to say, you know what? Why don't you work about 15 years to work off the debt that you, and then you can be back in the family. Because the worldview of the Pharisees and the scribes went like this restitution must precede reconciliation. So they said, I have to earn back the father's forgiveness. I have to do something to merit and earn my forgiveness and, and earn my way back into the father's good graces. They expected the father to rebuke the son, to humiliate the son. They never would have expected the father to look like 
this. Because as we see in, the, in this passage, the father acts very differently than any Jewish man would have at this time. First of all, he's scanning the horizons for his son. And when he sees his son, he's moved with compassion. If the son disobeyed and ran away, in Jewish culture at that time, guess what the father would say? Anathema, you're dead to me. Get out of here. You've brought shame on this family. You're not coming back. But yet he's scanning the horizons looking for his son. Next, the father runs to him. Now, that's probably not that big of a deal to us. Men didn't run in the first century. It was, it was literally, it was very unmasculine to run or to kiss. And that, that's what the father's doing here. He's running and kissing and embracing. He's acting not very masculine and not like a father would because it was very shameful to show your legs and to run was the father have to do. He has to hike up his man skirt and get running, right? Like it's, it's something that guys didn't do. So the father is breaking all of the norms because he's overwhelmed with love and a desire to forgive and reconcile and embrace the son. Embrace the son. The father doesn't come to him and say, you know what, try to clean yourself up and then I'll forgive you. He doesn't say once your moral report card hits B's, then you can be part of the family. He doesn't say any of that. What does the father do? He forgives. And he welcomes the son back in immediately. You know, and that's exactly what God does to us as well. That's exactly what God does to us as well. But the only reason we can do that is because we had an older brother who's willing to pay the cost for our mistakes and our failures. See, when we were off living it up in a far country and the father was going to punish us, we had an older brother who stepped in and said, I'll take the place of my younger brother. Punish me and give them my reward, right? It's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus lived the perfect life we never could and then he died the death that we deserved so that we come, when we come back to the Father, we can be embraced and welcomed because when he sees us, he sees the beloved older brother. He sees Christ. I love that. I love the response that the Father has to the Son. He runs, he embraces him, he kisses him. But then notice what he does. He puts the best robe on his son the robe that's reserved for uh, essentially royalty and the greatest guest. He cl- this is the son who's probably still covered in, in pig junk and, and mud and dirt, right? He covers him with his best robe. He puts a ring on his finger. That'd be the signet ring of the family, showing that he's still one of his authority-bearing sons. He puts sandals on his feet. That doesn't sound that big to us. Going barefoot kind of sounds fun. But in that time, if you were barefoot, that means you were a slave or a servant. So by putting sandals on his feet, he's saying he's not a slave or a servant, but he's over the property and he's being restored to his position of honor. And then he kills the fattened calf. Now, we're Americans, so we meet about... 20 times a week, right? But in this culture, they didn't eat meat very often. It was reserved for the highest and the greatest of occasions. And the fattened calf was reserved for something really special, like the wedding of the oldest son. But he says, go and kill the fat. We are celebrating. We're throwing a feast. We are celebrating that the son has come back. Remember my opening illustration of the kid that kind of got caught plagiarizing and coming back? Like, well, imagine if the parent threw a party and celebrated and welcomed them back, right? And like, good, we're so happy that you came home. Right? It's kind of, it, it, it blows the mind of the original listeners. They don't understand this father. They don't understand. And you know, we need to realize that God, God is ready to reconcile anybody who comes to him with a repentant heart and faith, and faith in Jesus. God is our father desperately wants a relationship with us. 
Remember what 2 Peter 3.9 said, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's so important to realize that God will never reject us if we come to him with real repentance and faith in Jesus. I think it's so important that we understand that because I have met so many people over the years who think that they could never come to God because there's no way that God could love or forgive them. Maybe they grew up and because of a particular sin they struggled with, they'd heard all their lives that God hates people like that and there's no way God could ever love them. Maybe they, think, they look back on their past and they just kind of have the highlight reel of all the mistakes that they've made and maybe there's been some really, really bad ones that even the world would say is really bad. And they think of ways that they've hurt other people or they've ruined lives or all these terrible choices they've made and they think there is no way that the church could ever accept me. And there's no way, especially that God could ever accept me. There's so many people in this world that run away from the church. They run away from faith. They run away from Christians as fast as possible because they think that there's no way they can ever get rid of their guilt and their shame. And that's something they have to bear and be plagued with for their life. And there's no grace and no forgiveness for them. But this passage reminds us, no matter how terrible of mistakes you've made in your past, if you come to God with a repentant heart, you can be forgiven and embraced in his family. No matter how badly you've screwed up your life, his grace can still cover your sin. His robe can cover you. No matter how ashamed you are of your past, God is ready to clothe you with honor and righteousness if you trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. God is waiting with open arms to forgive us. And that's true for every single person. I don't care what it is in your past. I don't care what you struggle with. God is willing to welcome you into his family if you just come to him. So tonight, if you're living off in the far country and you've been there for quite some time and unsure of what to do, come home to the Father. Realize that this is the portrait that Jesus wants us to see of how the father views his repentant kids. God's wanting to throw a huge celebration party if you come home to him and he wants to welcome you into his family. Even though this son deserved to be welcomed as a disobedient, deadbeat son, he gets welcomed and celebrated as a hero because of the grace and mercy of his father. And you know, the entire town is celebrating. The entire town's happy. They're throwing this big party. And that's when we see the last character in the story. We see the second son, and we see the fifth movement in our parable, a return to rejection. Look at verses 25 through 32. It says this, the last section here. Now his older son, he was in the field working. And as he came near to the house and drew near, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Your father's so happy. But the, son, the older son was angry and refused to go in. So he shamed his father and his father had to come out from the party and beg him and entreat him to say, come in and celebrate. But he answered his father, look, basically saying, look, old man, many years I've served you. I've slaved away and I never disobeyed a command of yours, which is probably a lie. He's exaggerating there. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours, when he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he comes back, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. 
but it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's, he's found. So we see the father's heartbreaking encounter with the older son, the other lost son, I would say, as we see in this parable, because the older son does the same thing the younger son did. He rejects a relationship with the father. Notice why the son, the older son is so angry. He's angry at the love and forgiveness that his father was willing to show to the younger brother. He says, this son that went out and blew his money on prostitutes and reckless living, you're just going to welcome him in without making him try to earn it back, without doing stuff? With it? You're going you're gonna to put him back in the family and he's going to be my brother? I've done so much more than him. I've been so much better. Here's my resume. I've slaved away. I've obeyed the commands. And honestly, I think the older brother's a little jealous. He's thinking, I would have loved to do those things, but I didn't because I was afraid I'd get punished. And now you're just welcoming him back in. That's not fair. He got to do everything I ever wanted, but I was obedient. What did it get me? It got me nothing. What's he saying there? He's saying, I don't really love you, dad. I've been serving you because I want the fattened calf, because I want your reward because I want all the things I thought this relationship was going to give me. If I knew I could have the reward without the relationship, I would have ditched you a long time ago as well. The older son does the same thing the younger son does. He rejects the love of the father. He has a terrible perspective of the father. Just like the younger son, he doesn't think the father is good or loving or gracious or kind. He just sees the father as a means to an end. The, old, the younger son was outwardly rebellious. The younger son was just as rebellious. He was just inwardly rebellious. And guess who the older son is representing in this parable? It's pretty obvious if we remember back to the opening, the opening context in verses 1-2. Who is it? Scribes and Pharisees, right? They say, Jesus, how do you like these sinners? You know God hates them, right? <laughs> how, how can you say that their sins are forgiven? They haven't brought sacrifices. They haven't tithed. They haven't tithed down to their herbs and spices. They, they haven't helped build the temple. They don't obey the Mosaic law. Why aren't you making them do all these things that I've had to do? Well, what's this talk about grace and forgiveness? They have to earn it. What's going on, Jesus? The older scribes misunderstood this because they had no conception of what the gospel is all about. They thought that they were saving themselves. They thought they didn't need a savior because their righteousness was making God happy with them. They had a works-based religion rather than a grace-filled relationship, right? Now, having a relationship with God through faith and grace, that doesn't mean that we have a license to sin because real repentance says, I want to move away from sin and, and obey God. But it's also recognizing that I bring nothing to the table. <laughs> I can't earn back my salvation. Doing penance, doing all these things, doing all these good works, I can never do enough stuff to earn back the Father's forgiveness. The Father's forgiveness is given to me even when I was totally un unlovable. It's so important that we see the second brother is just as lost and just as broken as the younger brother. Because maybe some of you out there tonight are thinking, that younger brother doesn't sound anything like me. I grew up in church, I went to a Christian university, I did Awana, I did all these things, I've lived a great life. And you can start quoting just like the older son. I've obeyed every command the Father has given me. I'm great, I have all these things. 
without ever realizing it. And maybe, maybe there's some people out there that even look down on the younger brothers of this world. And we have a little bit of spiritual pride and think, I'm so much better than them. God loves me so much more than them because look at all that I've done. And pff, man, I those people are never going to know God. Can you believe the sin that they're up in? There's a lot of Christians today that have a lot of spiritual pride. And there's no place for that in the kingdom. There's no place for that in the church. We, as one theologian once said, are just beggars leading other beggars to where we found bread. Right? We're not better off. We're uh, desperately desirous of the younger brothers to come and to know how awesome and loving the Father is. And I'm so frustrated at the state of Christianity where there's so many Christians that look down on other people and scoff and think they are so much better than everyone else, not recognizing that it's only grace that's saving them as well. There's no room for that. So did the older brother ever come to the party? The parable stops. We don't know the answer. It just kind of stops. The father says, I got to celebrate. My younger son, who I thought was dead and lost, he's found and he's alive. The father, which is God, says, I'm celebrating. You can come into the party or not. We never see the response of the older brother in this parable, but you know, we do see the response of the older brothers in the gospels. Because here's the ending to this parable. On, upon hearing this, the older son was indignant towards the father. He picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. Right? Because what happens? The scribes and Pharisees killed Jesus just a few months later because they hated him so much. They hated the grace and the love that he brought. Now, I didn't come up with that. I read that, but that's a pretty powerful picture, realizing that the answer to the story was they never got it because they said, who are you to tell me that I'm not good enough on my own? And Jesus said, the father loves you, but you gotta come on his terms. You gotta come with humility that says, I'm repenting of my sin and putting my faith in Jesus. So final, final words of application as we close out. Number one, as kingdom citizens, there's no room for spiritual pride. As I was just saying, there's no room for spiritual pride. We try to pursue a relationship with Christ through the best that we can, we, but we humbly recognize that we are totally dependent on grace and God's goodness for that process every single day. And we should never look down on people who haven't found their way to Christ yet, but instead we should look upon them with humility and a desire to see them know the love of the Father. If there's someone in this world that you hate so much that you don't want to share the gospel with them, that is a major issue, right? We should want more than anything to see everybody come to know the love of the Father. We should not desire God's punishment for anybody. We want to see them one with the gospel. There's no room for spiritual pride. But second, we need to ensure their spiritual lives are centered on a relationship with the true and living God. Our relationship can't be predicated on the fact that I do a lot of good things for God, right? You can come to church, you can serve, you can go through the checklist and you can be just as spiritually dead as a person who doesn't do all those things because Christianity is not a checklist of things to do. It's not earning God's favor. It's first and foremost a relationship that then leads to a desire to do those good works. It's not the other way around. It has to start with a real relationship with God. And then lastly, just realize the relentless and radical love that God has for you. This is the type of father that God is that we see in this parable. No matter where you are, what you've done, how far you've wandered, there is grace and forgiveness if you're willing to repent of your sin, to leave the far country, to come to the father and ask for forgiveness. That's 
the parable of the prodigal, the gracious, the loving father. So tonight, let's be blown away with his radical love for us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this challenging parable tonight that stretches us on so many levels. But the biggest way it stretches us is to oftentimes reinterpret our view of you. So easy to fall into the mindset of the world that views you in so many wrong ways that says that you're a killjoy or that you're legalistic or that all these other things that the world says that we need to just escape your rule. But no, God, the Bible tells us, and we know this to be true in our hearts through a relationship with you, that you are good, that you are kind, that you are gracious, that you are loving, and that you know what is exactly best for us. And our best possible life is to be under your authority, your provision, and your care. So, Father, I pray for all of us tonight, whether we are struggling with spiritual pride as the older brother or struggling with wandering in a far country like the younger brother, let us come in real repentance to you and to be embraced and welcomed back into your family and to desire nothing more than a deeper relationship with you. Be with our small group time now, and uh, we just pray uh, in Jesus' name and lift this evening up to you. Amen.